In honor of reading of the Word of God, would you stand with me in showing Him reverence? Our scripture reading this morning begins in Romans 7 and goes on into Romans 8, beginning in verse 14. This is the very Word of God to us this morning. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For what God has done, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. If you'd open them to Romans chapter five, we'll be talking today from Romans six through part of eight. We won't get very far into Romans eight today. We'll do that next time. But we're going to be talking about indwelling sin, another one of those important topics that we have to tackle in in order to understand how it is that we fight against sin. How do we make progress against it? This whole process called sanctification, you know, we've as we sang, we've been justified, justified through the blood of Christ. And now we are being sanctified. We are working against sin, fighting sin. And so we're going to talk about some some of these topics here this morning. And again, for those of you who are visiting with us, uh, we're taking a little bit of a break from our usual expositional work through the book of Ephesians. And as we're in Ephesians chapter 4, I thought we'd stop for a little bit. There are a lot of questions and discussions on, you know, the old man, new man, uh, the old self, new self, indwelling sin, the flesh, those kind of things. Really easy topics to take up. And so... um, Obviously, being facetious, but um, thought you know, we ought to tackle these so we understand them a little better. 
uh, as then we get back into working through Ephesians 4, where we're actually tackling specific sins and learning how to put off that sin and put in its place a righteous behavior that corresponds. So uh, that's what we're trying to do. So we're taking a little bit of a break. These messages are more theological rather than expositional that we normally do. So <clears throat> Romans 6 through 8, indwelling sin. With new life and that new self that we have put on, true believers want nothing more than to please their Father in heaven. It deeply grieves us whenever we do sin, whenever we choose to disobey His Word. It grieves us when we fail to do what He has called us to do. And what we're going to be working on today is this. Even though believers are clothed with that new self that we talked about already in Ephesians 4, even though we're clothed with the new self, our battle with sin is real because our unredeemed flesh gives sin a foothold. Our unredeemed flesh gives sin a foothold. Now, there's a lot of confusion, as you may know, if you've ever studied Romans 6 through 8 or read about it, and a lot of different ideas, and, and there, you know, it's not an easy uh, section to work through, and we're going to do that uh, some today, and I know we've, I've kind of walked you through some of that before, but it's important for us to hit it off and, and so that it keeps sinking in more and more, and we finally start to grasp what those chapters are about and, and how, because they're so practical. They're so helpful to us in our fight with sin and our striving to be, to live a godly life. And so armed with a clear understanding of what is this idea of the flesh, what is indwelling sin, that will help us grasp the biblical method for dealing with sin that Paul gives us in Romans 6 through 8. So let's first consider some important biblical truths. We've touched on these a little bit already, but uh, some of these will be new as we work through them first. The believer is to live a life of newness, <clears throat> obedience, and holiness. So I want to say up front that it is not okay for a person to be a believer in Jesus Christ and than to just go on living in sin. We're going to see, you know, Paul is straight out about that, that. No, that's not okay. Now, will you do you wrestle with sin? Yes, but it's not okay just to say that it's not important. <clears throat> Another truth. Fighting sin is a current earthly reality for believers. And we touched on that last time. We're going to talk about it some more today. And we're going to see that in uh, these chapters. <clears throat> Another one, our bodies have not yet been redeemed. And that last point is going to be, that last point is going to be important because it's going to help us understand how is it that we still wrestle with sin. If we put on that new self, that new man, then how do we, how is it that we're wrestling with sin? It's because our bodies have not yet been redeemed. And we've touched on that already some. And will again. <clears throat> See, we're waiting like uh, Romans 8 uh, talks about we're waiting for our bodies to be redeemed, the redemption of our bodies. And <clears throat> we're going to look at some other verses that, that call that out for us. 
our inner man has been redeemed. That's the new self we've been talking about, the new man that we've been talking about that we studied in Ephesians 4. But not all of us, not the whole of us, has been redeemed. Our flesh has not yet been redeemed. So, what is this unredeemed part of us? Well, the un, this unredeemed part of the Christian is called the flesh. And that's one of the terms that the Bible uses. And there are a number of terms that the Bible uses, especially when we're going through Romans 6 through 8. We find that term flesh. We find the term your mortal body. Paul uses at least a couple times. This term, the members of your body, he uses a lot in chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, toward the end, the body of this death. So these are some of the terms that are synonyms. They're, they're talking about the same thing, this unredeemed part of us, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. So, But what is it? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones had some helpful material on this. I don't agree with him on every point, but there, one of the things that was very helpful is he pointed out the term mortal body that Paul uses is our literal, physical, flesh and bones body. So it's, it's the part of us that we, we can see. We can't see each other's inner man, but we can see the flesh or this body, if you will. And he said, Lloyd-Jones pointed out that when Paul used the adjective in front of the word bodies, he said mortal bodies, what he's doing is he's contrasting this current body that we have with the body that we're going to receive. And you can think of a lot of passages that we'll look at or talk about. We looked at 1 Corinthians 15, that glorified body that we're going to receive. So there's something now that's going to be replaced by something far greater. And, and that's what Paul is doing here. <clears throat> Philippians 3.21, for example, teaches us that Jesus will transform the body of our humble state, the one we have right now, into conformity, he's going to transform it into conformity with the body of his glory. Okay, so he's going to make the body that we have now, and he's going to transform it. It's not like he's going to just, okay, trash it completely and then just create something all, you know, from scratch. He's going to take our bodies, he's going to transform them into something that reflects his glory, the glory of his current body. His human body that he took on and is now glorified after his res- or at his resurrection. So, <clears throat> these bodies that we have, they still have to be glorified. They have to be transformed. Okay. Now, just uh, an aside here. This idea of the flesh, it's distinguished from sin. So when we talk about it, sometimes we use those terms interchangeably, and you'll find Paul comfortably talking about the flesh and then talking about sin. And But he distinguishes the two, even though they are very closely related, as we're going to see. He distinguishes the two. He says in Romans 7.25, With my flesh, I am serving the law of sin. So there he's saying, okay, with my flesh, I serve sin. So they're not the same thing. They're closely related but they're not identical. Uh, Commentator Douglas Moo explains that flesh in these passages refers to the seat of sinful passions, the sinful desires. It's in our flesh that those reside. We've been given new desires that's in the new man, in our spirit. But in our flesh is still those old desires. The flesh is where sinful desires arise 
from, and they are opposed to the desires of the Holy Spirit. And you think here Galatians 5, where Paul is saying, okay, they're, they're warring against each other in the believer. So there's the desires of the flesh and there's the desires that the Spirit is prompting in us and in in that new man, our inner man, and those war against each other. Uh, Puritan John Owen said that the flesh is the seat and throne of the power of sin. So these are good ways to see how flesh and sin are related to one another. But as we're talking about this idea of the flesh, and as Lloyd-Jones said, it's, it's our you know flesh and bones bodies. Is it limited to that? Well, others will add to what he said and help to explain it because it, it's... There's more to it than that. That's a good way to wrap your head around it. But as I'll show you, there's more that's involved with our bodies. Okay, So, again, Doug Moo explained that flesh has to do with the this worldly part of our being. And he goes on, he said, it's the believer's form of existence in this world and still has a part in this age. So think about, we read from 1 Corinthians 15 toward the end of the chapter there uh, last time. In verse 49, he was saying, talking about our bodies. Remember how a seed, when it is planted in the ground, the seed dies and it has to die. And then it gives rise to you know, something, a plant that, that sprouts from it. Okay, but the seed dies. He says the same is true. So in a sense, when our bodies die and and they are, if you will, planted here, just his illustration, then something is going to sprout from that is going to be, if you will, our glorified bodies. Okay, but what he does there in First Corinthians 15 is Paul says, you know, that this is earthy is the term he used. Okay, it's it's like this world. It's part of this world. But. The body that's going to be transformed, or as this is transformed into our glorified bodies, it will not be earthy anymore. It'll be heavenly. In other words, it'll be like heaven. It'll have the character of heaven rather than the character of this present earth. MacArthur agrees with what Doug Moo was saying there. Uh, and he says that in Romans 6.19, <clears throat> flesh is here used as a synonym for humanness. So you can see how they're expanding this idea uh, from just our body, which that's the main part of it, but expanding it to our humanness or our mortality. The flesh is the human faculty influenced by sin. And as long as believers remain in their mortal bodies, sin still has a beachhead. And, and that that's going to be a, a picture that I'm going to carry forward and help us because it's very helpful. Sin still has a beachhead, a place to launch its attacks. And then he gave a clear way to think about this. He said that our flesh is our unredeemed humanness. And so you see that, that idea of our humanness. So there's something about, and it's hard to exactly, you know, put our finger on it precisely, but it's primarily our bodies. But there's, there's more to it than that. There's this humanness that's still fallen, okay, that has not been redeemed yet. So let me think with me for a minute. Um, our brain, for example, and this is kind of where there's that that overlap, okay? Because our brain is part of our physical body, right? But yet there are things in our brain, like the information stored there, and I'll give you one example that we'll we'll work with next time. That's going to be real helpful. Is the idea of habit, okay? So if you know how to ride a bike, you probably don't have to think about how to ride a bike anymore, right? You just hop on and you go. 
Okay, and, and those of you who drove here today, you probably didn't think about, you know, what you did to drive here. You didn't think about, okay, you know, right foot, press the gas, left foot, press the brake, you know. Uh, you, don't, you don't think, you just get in and you do it, right? Because it's habit. You develop habits. But there's also other kinds of habits that are ethical, have an ethical uh, aspect to them, like habit of anger, okay, uh, worry. So whenever you think about habits, so you, you've maybe developed a habit that whenever somebody does X, you get angry, sinfully angry. Okay, that's a habit. That's stored in your brain, okay? And you have to work to replace that. We're going to talk about that next time. Or whenever a certain kind of situation, you know, you encounter that, your habit is to worry. Okay, that's stored in your brain. So you see how there, there's more going on than just the physical part of our body, but there, there, in the brain, there's this... It's not quite physical, but it's stored there, right? Okay? <clears throat> and so, uh, that can help to understand what they mean by this humanness. Now, let's go to the next slide. And, and I try to give you illustrations that sometimes will maybe help you grasp this a little better, okay? So, I know that no man is an island, but here you're going to be an island, okay? <clears throat> and and so, you you are the island. That's your new man. That's your new self, Okay? In the white sandy beaches, as much as we love those, here it's going to represent the flesh, okay? So the white, you know, around the island there is the flesh, okay? And what happens there, and I'm, I'm taking off of MacArthur, and there are other commentators who use the same idea of a beachhead, okay? So what happens is when sin wants to launch an attack against us, it is able to get on the beach and then launch an attack against our inner man. What that means is sin comes, it gets a foothold on on our flesh, and it tempts us to sin. That's the attack, okay? And so there's this idea of a beachhead, which I think is real good, or, or maybe a foothold, uh, good ways to think of it. That's what the flesh does. It provides sin a beachhead or a foothold from which to launch an attack. <clears throat> now, I do need to... You know, throughout today, we're going to correct various errors that you probably have heard, or a lot of you have heard, if you've read much in this. And um, <clears throat> When I talk about the body being uh, what sin uses to launch attacks, I am not saying that the body is evil. There have been, from Paul's day all the way through to our day, where they say, oh, the physical world is naturally intrinsically evil. You know, and only the spiritual world is good. Oh, well, that's not true. The Bible does not teach that, and it's just not accurate to say that. <clears throat> Why? Several reasons. Well, where did the physical world come from? God created it, Right? And when he finished creation, what did he say about it? It was very good. Okay, so it's not evil, right? We also find in 1 Corinthians 6.20 that even though our bodies have been corrupted by sin, a believer can glorify God with their body and, and must. Okay, so if I can glorify God with my body, then my body can't intrinsically be evil, even though it does provide, unfortunately, a beachhead for sin. And then, one day, as we've talked about, 
God is going to redeem these bodies. He's going to redeem them. He's going to glorify them. Okay. So, let's talk for a minute about indwelling sin. In the believer, or in the unbeliever, before they come to know Christ, sin is the prevailing power. Sin is the prevailing power. And we're going to see that when Paul talks about that, about sin in Romans 6. That what's going on there, he's going to say, okay, you know, sin used to be your master. It was the prevailing power. But don't let it rule anymore because it, 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 its power has been broken. Its dominion has been broken. But in the unbeliever, it is the prevailing power. But in the believer, sin is no longer the dominant power. Paul said that we have died to sin, Romans 6.2. While sin is still present, its dominion has been broken. And these are some things that John Owen said that are real helpful in his work, his treatise on indwelling sin. Sin's dominion has been broken. It's no longer the master. It is severely weakened. And its root has been killed. Now, you might think, hmm, if you have a plant and you cut the root off of it, how can it still hurt me uh, if, you know, sin? Well, think for a minute, another picture of the uh, poison ivy plant that I found earlier this season in my yard. And and every year I will find one or two pop up, you know, birds dropping seeds. and, And so I'm allergic to poison ivy. So I can't just go grab it and pull it. I can, but you know, then I, I look real pretty after that. So, so I don't. I'm real careful about it. But I will pull it up by its roots. If I have to, I'll get a shovel and I'll dig it up so that I get the root and all because it will just keep coming back if I don't get the root. Okay. So I had that plant out and, and I, I used a plastic bag put over it and I you know, pulled it up and so it didn't get it on me and I, wanted, and I was going to throw it away in the plastic bag. Okay. And, you know, I wanted root and everything out. Okay, and I got it all out. And I put it in the plastic bag, tied it up, put it in the trash. Why didn't I put it on my compost pile? Because I know it drives Connie crazy, but anything green or, you know, brown, you know, wood goes on my compost pile, right? But not poison ivy. Why is that? Because poison ivy can still hurt you, if you're allergic to it, up to two years after it's dead. Okay, so think about sin. So God in us, it's like he's pulled, pulled up that plant, sin, cut the root off of it. It is withering, but it can still hurt you until your body is glorified. Okay, it's like that poison ivy plant. It can still hurt you. That's what we're dealing with here. And that helps us as we wrap our minds around this idea of indwelling sin. Now, another important point, uh, every believer does still sin in this life. So keep your finger here in Romans 5 and go over to 1 John chapter 1. So 1 John chapter 1, and what Scripture teaches us, well, so there are groups and they're from a lot of different backgrounds who do teach that you can actually get to a place where you don't sin as a Christian before you're glorified. Okay. Well, that's contrary to Scripture. Okay. 
And I want you to listen to the very strong words the Apostle John has for people who say that they don't sin or that you can get to a place where you don't sin. So, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, here's the good news, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Those are very strong words. And what John is saying there is that the people who think that they can get to a place where they don't sin, and if they say, I've arrived and I don't sin anymore, John, as an apostle who had the Holy Spirit as he wrote this, uh, moving him to write it, said that those people are deceiving themselves. The truth is not in them. That is huge. The truth is not in them. And then he repeats it again in verse 10, saying the word, God's word is not in them. And in verse 10 he says they make God into a liar. So every believer does still sin in this life. Okay, you can turn back to Romans 5. Next point, and this one is going to carry us through as we work our way through Romans 6 through 8. Our flesh provides a beachhead for sin sin to launch its attack. So I've said that, and now we're going to develop that and understand how that works, the dynamic of that. Our flesh provides a beachhead for sin to launch its attacks. So we're going to walk through Romans 6 through 8, and so we better understand the biblical doctrine of progressive sanctification. Okay, so justification is something that happens point in time. Boom, it's done. Right? Once. It doesn't have to. It's not a process. But sanctification is a process. Fighting sin and learning to live in a holy manner is a process. And and so it's progressive sanctification. Okay? So, why did Paul write Romans 6 through 8? You know, you always want to try to understand, okay, why did the writer write what he did? And not just what did he say, but why did he say it? And that's helpful. So, that's why I had you go to Romans 5. So, at the end of Romans 5, I just want to read the last two verses. He's been talking about being either, we were originally in Adam, then in Christ. And he talks about justification, that that one-time event that happens when we are saved, we are justified, we're declared righteous. Verse 20 of Romans 5. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so having said that, that where where sin increases, grace increases even more. Paul knows what some people are going to say and how they're going to counter him and call him an antinomian. So, verse 1 of chapter 6, this is his answer, or he's first the question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? 
So he's saying, okay, if I, if I tell you, which this is true, that where sin abounded in us, because we were rebelling against the law, rebelling against God, sin abounded, then grace superabounded. Some people are going to say, oh, well, let's just keep sinning, because then more and more grace will come. Or is that what you're saying, Paul? So some people actually want to believe that, and others want to just try to thump Paul for, you know, something that they're trying to charge him with. That was not true. So what he does is, okay, so I'm going to write three chapters here to prove to you that, no, I'm not saying that. No, it is not true that we should continue in sin. And what he says is, we have died to sin and we must walk in new ways. So let's continue. Romans 6, verse 3. Or, and here, he's, he's reasoning, right? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, there's, that's our spiritual baptism, that have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Again, spirit baptism, our water baptism is a picture of. In order that Christ, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, not in sin. For if we have become united with him, that's what this spiritual baptism is talking about. We've been united with Jesus in the likeness of his death. In other words, so we would have died to sin. There, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self, remember we talked about that in Ephesians 4, our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin, or literally justified from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And so having said that and laid that out for us, what Paul will do next, and we'll skip down to verse 11, he's going to say there's something, there's two things you need to get straight in your head. Two things you need to remember. Okay, so verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's those two things that we have to, we have to understand them and realize that they are true. We need to remind ourselves of them. Some of the old English terms for it, you know, reckon these things. Now, again, another error out there. Some people will say, and there are books that are actually written, the whole book does nothing but try to show you that all you ever need to do is Romans six eleven. you just reckon it. That's all you have to do. And you got it. And I always push back and say, well, just read one more verse. There's more to do. That's not enough. Now, you do, I agree with them, you do have to do that. You have to wrap your head around these two truths, what he says here, that you are dead to sin and alive to God. We do have to do that. But that's not all we have to do. Read one more, a couple more verses here, and you see, notice the put-on, put-off ethic that we find here. Remember, we, that we kind of launched into that with Ephesians 4. The put off, put on, right? So we find it here, as we do in many places. So verse 12, the very next verse. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Okay, there's, that's all the put off. 
Here's the put on. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So what he's saying here is don't let sin get a beachhead. Don't let it get a foothold in your flesh so that it can launch an attack on your inner man and tempt you to sin. Instead, you need to live righteously. And so is the the new slide that's up here. What I did is I took one that was vertical and I did this one horizontal. And we're going to look at it a little differently. So instead of you being an island, you're here are the... The flesh is the outer outline there, the the white part of that, of the person. And then you have the little inner man there, okay? So that, that's represented in the, the black, smaller person, okay? So your inner man is the new man, okay, that we've talked about, that you have put on, if you will. But the flesh is still there, and that's that, that outer part, right? And again, think of it that way, that on that outer part is where sin will seek to get a foothold so that it can launch an attack, or a beachhead to launch an attack on your inner man to tempt you to sin. That's what Paul has been talking about here, okay? Now, this raises another question for Paul's readers well, do we still have to keep God's laws? Well, look at a few more verses, 14 and 15. He, he concludes, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And so some people, can, even today, conclude from that, Oh, hey, we don't have to keep God's laws anymore. And that's not true. But they, they say, well, this then again, that's where you just take one verse out of context, and you can build error around it. That's what they do. Well, keep reading. Verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. And then just for the sake of time, skip down to verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. You see how in our inner man we become obedient. We want to do God's will. In verse 18, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Okay, so he says, no, we do still keep God's laws, his commands, right? Okay, then does that mean that we're still under the law of Moses, the old covenant? Well, let's skip ahead, and I'm not going to go into all of the early part of of Romans 7, but verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, the law of Moses, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So, as you might remember, he uses that illustration there in the first part of chapter 7 about a woman who's married. So she's married to her husband as long as he lives. And so what he's saying, but when when he dies, then she's free to remarry. Okay, and so... Paul is using that as an illustration, saying that we have died to the law, so it's not our not over us anymore in that sense. It doesn't mean that we don't obey it, okay? So if we're no no longer under the law, then is the law sin? Well, Paul is going to show in verses seven through fourteen that, no, the law is holy. It served a good purpose because what it did is it revealed sin in us. It showed us that we were sinners, that we were lost, that we needed to be saved. 
But sin used God's holy law, it used the commandment to entice us to sin, to rebel against God. So Paul says there, remember, he says, you know, I'd never even heard of coveting. And then when I when the law said don't covet, I couldn't stop coveting. He's like, that's what I wanted to do. Because sin enticed him to use God's law to now rebel against God. And and so he said, no, sin is the problem, not the law. Okay. So sin is no longer my master. Its power has been weakened. I've put on the new self. So I can now keep God's commands on my own, right? So the, the key to understanding what's going on in this last half of chapter 7 is to notice something that uh, Lloyd-Jones and others point out. And it's very insightful. don't know if you picked up on it in your reading. But the Holy Spirit is mentioned only once in Romans 6 through 7. And I read that verse to you in Romans 7, verse 6. Not mentioned at all in chapter 6. And only mentioned that one time in chapter 7. And what we're going to read, the part that's really controversial about chapter 7, you know, who is this wretched man that Paul says that he is? The key to understand that is to know that he hasn't really talked about the Holy Spirit in this. He just mentions him briefly, and he's going to then expand on that. But so far, he's not talked about the Holy Spirit. So, Romans 7, verses 14 to 25, is the experience of a true believer who tries to obey God in his own power. And you'll read some people and they'll say, oh, you know, Romans, this second half of verse chapter 7 is about, an, it's a, that's an unbeliever. If you believe that, if you've been taught that, and a lot, there are a lot of godly people out there that do hold that, <clears throat> some that I respect, um, I counsel you to go read chapter 1 and then compare what he says about the person in chapter 1 with chapter 7. And you'll see that what Paul says of himself in chapter 7, there's no way it could be an unbeliever based on what he says in chapter 1. Okay? So it must be a believer. But then there's different theories about, okay, what kind of believer is this? Okay? And we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the carnal versus spiritual uh, that is very popular. Um, we'll talk about that next time. <clears throat> now, let's, let's read through... Romans 7, and we'll start reading verse 15. For that, this is Paul talking. And he's talking present day for him. This is him while he wrote this. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do. But I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. See the flesh there? For the wishing is present in me, my inner man, but the doing of the good is not my flesh. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not wish. But if I'm not doing the very thing I do not wish, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now, he's not absolving himself of any kind of accountability there. But he's saying that I'm I'm trying to help you understand where this is happening in you. It's happening in your flesh. Okay. 
Verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. And then notice this, verse 22. We're going to come back to this briefly at the end. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, the new man. I joyfully concur. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind. See, there's that beachhead picture. And making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. So we saw in chapter 6, verse 11, there are two things we need to wrap our heads around and remember. Sin's power over us has been broken and we are alive in Christ. Then we saw that we must do the put off, put on dynamic, that ethic, right? Stop using our bodies for sinful purposes and replace those with purposes to serve righteousness. And then we just saw what I read from Romans 7, that it becomes very clear we still need something else. We still need something else. What is it? Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, one of the most beautiful statements in Scripture. Why? For the law of the Spirit, aha! There's the Spirit. First time he's mentioned it since chapter 7, verse 6. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." You, believer, you must continually make real progress against sin. You also must make real progress continually in living righteously. But you need God, the Holy Spirit, to empower you to do that. Romans 7 shows that, and this is the experience of every one of us all the time. Part of you... You want to obey God's law, and you set out to do it, and you don't. And you also set out to do God's law, and you do. Think about it this way. You are with your child at the store, and let's say that you used to, before you were saved, had a a real big problem with lying, okay, Whatever, for whatever reason. So somebody in line asks you something, and that kind of, you know, it, it, it was something you would have lied about in your old days. But you don't lie because you're like, no, I'm not going to lie. Spirit, help me. I'm tempted to lie. I'm not going to lie. And you don't. Okay, the Spirit of God helped you and you, you obeyed God. But all while that's happening, your, your child is pulling on you and, you know, begging for that candy. I know, that's never happened to you all, right, parents? <laughs> To the point that, you know, it's just you, you, and you just yell at them. You just, 
you, you wanted to be godly toward them, but you didn't depend on the power of the Spirit to help you carry out God's will. So there in that very moment, in the one way, you obeyed God because you depended on the Spirit, and in the other, you didn't because you tried in your own power. Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones emphasized, while sin has been weakened, it is still too powerful for you. You know, if, if I go and touch that poison ivy plant after it's been dead a while, I'll still break out. Okay? Sin is still too powerful for you. Don't ever get, you know, where you think that, oh, you know, I, I can beat sin. It is still too powerful for you. It can still hurt you, even though its root's been cut off. <clears throat> so Romans 7 and 8 are both the present experience of every true believer. But we need to depend on the Holy Spirit to enable us to obey. And one thing real quick. Romans 8, 4. And this is part of the, the being set free. Paul says there that what Jesus did, in part, is he fulfilled the law for you. We don't ever, ever, ever have to try to obey God's law to be right with God. Actually, that's an offense to Jesus if we try that. Because He fulfilled it for us. That's what He's saying. He fulfilled the law for us. Oh, so that means now I don't have to worry about obeying any laws. No, not at all. Sorry. The true believer's response to that truth that Jesus has fulfilled the law is this. It's a vigorous pursuit of righteousness. Because you say, wow, Jesus, I love you. And I want to keep your law now. This is the believer's view of God's law. It brings me joy to do that which brings God joy. It brings me joy to do that which brings God joy. If that's not you, then you need to go back to the gospel. So next week, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit's role. How is it that he helps us to fight sin and to live righteously? We're going to go into that more from Romans 8. So I'd like you to read this week, read Romans 8 and Galatians 5. Both of them come at it from a little bit different perspectives, but they overlap a lot. So that'll help prepare you for our discussion next time. As we come to the Lord's Supper... Again, as I had read from uh, Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, that Jesus, what He's done for us, three things to call out. We have a new right standing with God because He fulfilled the law. Jesus did. We have a new ability to keep the law because of the Holy Spirit. And we have new desires because of what Jesus did. We want to obey the law. And we want to grow in that. Preach the cross to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. You need to remind yourself of what Jesus did so that you walk rightly and follow Paul's directions that we saw here today.